Hey gang, welcome to episode 63 of the No Persinium podcast, your guide to immersive entertainment. I'm your host, Noah Nelson, coming to you from Los Angeles. This week on the show, we've got Jonathan Josephson, Paul Millett, and Jeff Rack, who are the founders of Unbound Productions, the purveyors of Wicked Lit, which is out in Altadena here in LA. That's just north of Pasadena, kind of, I think, north and to, to the, slightly to the east. More on that in a moment, but first, um, we're going to jump into the news and notes, because that's what we do. Last week, the spooky season began, issue-wise. Last week of the podcast was all about it. about it. Last weekend's LA newsletter was all about it. And after that came out, uh, Zay did the New York edition. Uh, so there's a couple of highlights I want to pull from the New York edition, uh, and that's going to be the core of our news and notes this time. First up, 29 Rooms. It's actually playing this weekend, uh, September 9th through 11th, noon to 7 p.m. It's in Brooklyn at Refinery 29. It's free for all. Um, from last year's description, we transformed a two-story warehouse into a funhouse aptly named 29 Rooms, which involved, yep, you guessed it, 29 larger-than-life interactive rooms. It was weird. It was fun. It was R29 in real life. So it's a, it's a thing for Fashion Week. Uh, it's free. Go check it out. If you're, if you're in New York, why not? It's an immersive funhouse. Uh, also popping up uh, soon uh, for this season in New York, uh, The Bad Years is coming back. Let's read the description, shall we? The Bad Years is New York's first fully immersive musical theater experience, a high-octane house party where bacchanalian revelry gives way to true connection. The audience joins a cast of archetypal 20-somethings so they flirt, fight, and flip cup, flip cup, flip cue, what? Flip cup their way into adulthood. For some, this is a shot at nostalgia. For others, a pint of catharsis. The audience moves freely through the party, choosing their own adventure and creating their own party stories along the way. Uh, it's the bad years. Check it out. Uh, we put a link up in the Twitter because uh, maybe the link in the last issue well, wasn't, wasn't the right one. Um, here's another one that stood out to me <coughs> in the piece. Uh, coming up in October, how to field dress an android. Just you, you had me at android, which I guess is the last word in this sentence. But hey, audiences of how to field dress an android will find themselves on an island owned by Perry Kenneth, the president of Intelligent Solutions, the leading manufacturer of human-looking androids. In the not-too-distant future of this immersive production, killing animals for sport is illegal, so hunting enthusiast Kenneth is reduced to hunting his own machines. It's humans versus androids, and we, the audience, are the androids. Bump, bump, bump. It's the most dangerous game with androids. Uh, really on theme right now, because uh, that, oh, what was that movie? Oh, it had Hux and Poe Dameron in it. Um, you know the one, and the gal who wound up in uh, in in The Man from Uncle, uh, and it's from the guy, it's, it's from uh, the guy who's always working with, um, wow, I just totally failed. I love that movie, though. Right, like Oscar Isaac's, like he's doing that weird dance. It's for the androids. Um, Ex Machina. There we go. I knew it would come to me. I had to like relive the entire experience of going to it in order to remember the name, even though it was like one of my favorite movies of last year. And yeah, you saw how I did that. It's got Poe Dameron and Hooks in it. Yeah, you know. Of course, that's like five movies now. I don't know. You could have been thinking about uh, the one with the cat. Um, but hey, how to feel just an android. Uh, sounds like fun. Westworld's coming, so if you want to get your Westworld party on, uh, <laughs> it sounds like a nightmare to me. But uh, I know, I know, I'm gonna I'm look forward to the show. So if I was in New York, you know, I'd be there, running away from humans. Um, 
which is just like what I do anyway. So I don't know. Maybe that's not fun. $18 to run away from humans when I run away from humans anyway. Oh, the things we do for love. Speaking of, let's go to LA. Uh, last night I checked out a piece from uh, Shine On Collective. They had a piece in the Hollywood Fringe this year uh, that was one of the audio pieces. This is a very, very different piece. Uh, it's uh, This was called uh, Forever. It's part of a cycle called Devoted that started during uh, the the spooky season conventions, which were back in August because we never stop haunting here in LA. Um, this work is... I'm going to write about it, so I don't want to give away too much, but I keep your eye on Shine On because this was a quantum leap forward from what they had in the fringe this year. And there's there's a lot going on, and uh, I am I think I can get them on the podcast. So we'll, we'll sort of leave it at that for now. But tickets for the, uh, the piece that's going to be in October, which is the first one they're really kind of like letting people really go for because it started at the... Um, the conventions and then this piece was like sort of a bridge piece into the next one and only if you're at the conventions could you get it so they're kind of doing this like sort of latitude society-esque like exclusivity and so i you know be careful there kids in terms of how that works out um it can be financially non-viable is what i'm trying to say uh definitely definitely if you can get a ticket uh, if you can get a ticket and you can handle um, the more in the more in psychologically intense side of the horror stuff, I'd say uh, go for it. So not a lot of gore, but you know if if you have any PTSD of any kind, I'd probably avoid. Um, but if you don't, then uh, and that's sort of the thing you you seek out then definitely, definitely some interesting mojo going on there. More on that later. Another piece I saw in uh, the past week, uh, the Screenshot Productions' latest, Bardo Thodel, going to write some about that one as well. Once again, um, also with the PTSD action, like if, if, if getting kind of uh, manhandled a little bit or people really up close on you is not your thing, then this is, this is not for you. Uh, it is, after all, a, a confrontation with, like, you know, the demons that appear when you die, according to the uh, Egyptian Book of the Dead. That's the Bardo Thodel right there. Um, but again, with Screenshot, always, always operating underneath it all at this meditative kind of zen level. So it's it's not a Zen experience the way Shoshin was. Like, do not confuse what I'm saying. This is definitely spooky season stuff. This is definitely like trust fall level. Um, you know, there's some there's some moves to shock, uh, but that's on theme here. But at the end of the day, there's definitely some psychological uh, action going on underneath it. And again, going to write about it been busy so i haven't had time to do the writing that i want to do um tension experience is opening here in la i guess it, it started up last night um when i when this is going out so you probably want to there's a lot of people a lot of people listen to this podcast now i think because of tension so uh i'm sure you guys have your tickets already if you don't have a ticket um i'd say probably you probably want to check it out it's very very ambitious uh, i still haven't actually seen it yet so I can't attest for quality or anything of that nature. I haven't been on set, but the folks I know who've been on set have been very impressed by what they've seen so far. So there's there's a lot of good effort going into tension. Um, all right, want to move into one more thing before we frame this episode of the podcast for you, which is first, uh, major thanks to Nadia Lev, who is our latest Patreon backer. Nadia, I hope I, I, I 
got your your name right because I got reader's disease, so I'm always just like going off what I think I'm supposed to say. Um, jumped in at the five dollar level. So thankful. Uh, Nadia's got a, a, a long history in alternative media, and uh, it's really an honor to have someone like uh, like Nadia uh, backing the show and backing the newsletter. And backing the newsletter, and that's what I want to talk to you about. So we're having a great run right now in terms of people signing up for the newsletter. And we're also having a pretty good run with people actually opening the newsletter. I'm, I'm fairly happy about that because that's that's always the thing. You know how this goes. People sign up for something and then they don't open it. Uh, but no, we're doing, we're doing pretty good on that. Actually, we're doing so good on the signups that uh, maybe sooner than I anticipated, or, or maybe exactly when I anticipated, because I thought the end of the year would be when we were facing this, we're going to run up against MailChimp's um, free limit. There's only so many they'll let you send out for free, and there's only so many people that you have on the list. And uh, we're going to hit that probably by the end of the year at the rate we're going, if not a little sooner. And once we do that, it's going to start costing us. Um, now, the way I did the podcast in the first place was I said, hey, you know what? It's 20 bucks a month to uh, do the podcast uh, just to host it on Libsyn. So I'm not going to do the podcast unless we're at least revenue neutral. Uh, because um, as I've noted before, not independently wealthy, and I literally can't afford to um, do this thing uh, just on spec and hope that maybe people will, you know, be nice. I was like, no, like we've got to get the the cash up front. And we did, and you guys were wonderful, and everyone who jumped in to start, um, we're talking our Jays and our Marcy's and our Jeff Line and Webers, like all of you guys are so freaking critical to this thing existing. Uh, and, and I think about you guys all the time. Uh, and how you make this possible. Have you doomed me to a life of servitude? No. Um, this is a long pitch, a long sad sack pitch. Um, MailChimp is weird in that, and all this level. So the cap is 2,000, right? That's when things start to hit. So we haven't hit 2,000 people on the list yet. I don't usually talk about how many people on the list because I, I, marketers and whatnot, they go, you're small potatoes, but you're a dedicated bunch. So, uh, and you spread the word and you do great. But so at 2000 we're going to have to start paying money. And I think it's, last time I checked, I think it's like uh, 20 bucks a month, which ain't so bad. But that only covers the next 500 people. And then it's 2500 to 5,000 people, right? So it's really quickly, all of a sudden, um, you're, you're looking at 50 bucks a month. And if the growth carries the way it does, um, I, I think we're going to be breaching 2501 probably during the spring of next year. Um, that just feels right. There's an acceleration going on. I don't want to start kicking people off. Like I, there, that's one way I can prune the list, et cetera, et cetera, and keep the cost down. That's, that, that's a legitimate thing we could do. But I think that it would make more sense to just expand capacity. So if you listen to the podcast and you get the newsletter, or if you get the newsletter, I'm going to put this in the newsletter too. Um, we could use the the help to clear the $50 a month that MailChimp is going to come for us for uh, soon. Uh, it'd be nice to lay in some a larder for when that comes. Uh, I'm going to be paying taxes and all this money, so I like, got to be doing some of that. And again, just nothing else trying to be revenue neutral. Be nice to be being more than revenue neutral. Be nice to be able to like give the other writers like some money when I can, commission a few pieces. Uh, maybe build a travel fund for like pop it off places. Yeah, I think about that sometimes. Um, 
Would I like this to be my full-time job? Oh, heck yeah, I would. Uh, but that'd be really, really tricky. So right now, I'm just looking for, if you're a consistent listener of this and you're not backing the podcast, if you're not backing the Patreon, consider jumping in at a dollar. I think if everyone who was a regular listener who hasn't jumped in on the Patreon threw down a dollar a month, uh, which is 12 bucks a year, we'd, we'd, have, we'd be in pretty good shape. We'd be in pretty good shape for a while, and I could stop doing three-minute-long, uh, you know, NPR-style telethon breaks. So you go to patreon.com slash noprosinium. You wind up getting thanked on the show. You get thanked on social media, et cetera, et cetera. And there's, I'm going to restructure a few things, so there's going to be some incentives uh, from when we hit a couple of milestones. That's going to happen really, really soon. I just got to bite the bullet and do it. But right now, this this is um, this is the time. So there you go. All right, because you know we don't have a sponsor. We don't have we don't have advertising. We don't do advertising on the newsletter. I don't want to do advertising on the newsletter for shows and whatnot. Like we'll never do that. Um, we may do a sponsorship again for people who are you know field related, like we did before. Uh, but we're not going to be like, and now presenting this show that we would talk about anyway, but we're going to take money from. So now you're wondering what we're doing. Mm-mm, no, not going to do that. Never, 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 never going to do it for an escape room. Nothing like that. Nothing that blurs line and editorials. Does it hamstring us? Heck yeah, it does. Uh, we could just sell space, right? But come on, you'd stop trusting us to be being objective. And I don't want to do that. So there you go. Patreon.com slash no proscenium. Dollar a month. That's what we're looking for. All right. Enough begging for now. It's not begging. Not really. You guys get this thing. You got to deal with it once in a while. It's like an ad. Unbound Productions has been putting Wicked Lit on for some time now. You're going to know exactly how long when you listen to the interview. We recorded this at the Think Tank studio in the fashion district of Los Angeles. Shout out to Think Tank. Thank you guys for letting us be there and do that. Uh, there's a moment uh, in the piece where uh, one of the, where Paul, one of the guests has to go. So uh, there'll be like a minor transition moment. And uh, this one's, this is a good one. This is a good one. Uh, we're, it's very theatery. Uh, we're going to be nerds in that way. And Wicked Lit always sells out, so they're they got they got some mojo going on. I think you'll think you'll have fun with this episode. All right, see you in a minute. So we do kind of stumble into this. Uh, so the air conditioning is off. The interview is ready to start. All cold open, but for the sake of everyone who's listening, let's just uh, let's get everyone's uh, voices on record so people know who's talking when. So we'll start on my left with Jeff. Okay. So you'll. All right, starting now. Yeah, yeah. We're, this is the interview, right? This so, is it. Yeah. So that's so that's Jeff talking yeah. right there. This is uh, this is Jeff. Hi there. This is Paul, and this is Jonathan. Fantastic. And you are the triumvirate behind Unbound Productions, purveyors of Wicked Lit in Pasadena. And well, it's not in Pasadena. Like Wicked, when Wicked Lit happens, it's in Wicked Lit's in Altadena. In Altadena. That's where we've been. This is our seventh year. All the, all the Dinas. All the Dinas. The Dinas. So yeah. if there's a town with a Dina in it. You guys might... We own it. Okay. Yeah. Oh, own it. Own it. Ooh. Well, if you, you joined us uh, earlier in the summer for History Lit, and that was at the Pasadena Museum of History. That is correct. So for the summertime, we take over that Dina, and then the fall Dina is Altadena, and this will be our seventh year at Mountain View Mausoleum and Cemetery. So how... So it's been seventh year. What was the... 
origin? What was the genesis here? How'd you guys get to doing these live adaptations that have a processional thing? In fact, maybe just describe for folks, actually like myself, like I've been to History Lit, but I haven't been to Wicked Lit. So for folks like myself who haven't been, maybe Paul, maybe you can explain exactly what it is. Sure. Um, well, you were asked. You asked a couple of questions. One, how we got started, and then yeah. what it is. Let's start with what it is, and then okay. we'll, we'll tell the origin story. Sounds good. Uh, well, Wicked Lit is a site-specific uh, immersive theatrical production that involves the adaptation of three classic horror stories uh, that are uh, adapted and then produced in an alternative venue, uh, and the three plays are then uh, framed by a fourth production called a frame uh, that ties the whole evening together. So it's a frame and three plays adapted from classic horror literature. Fantastic. Now, now let's slide into the the origin story. So seven years ago, you found a cursed book or something. No. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> you heard of the Necronomicon, right? Uh, um. Necronomicon ex mortis, that one, or or just the standard Necronomicon? <laughs> right. Uh, it actually started in uh, in two thousand eight. Um, uh, Jeff, uh, Jonathan, and I uh, gathered together in my living room in January of 2008 uh, to discuss an idea of creating a Halloween theater festival, as we called it at the time, Ah. and what that would be. Uh, We didn't know what it could be, but we thought it could be something really cool. Uh, And so that's how it started. And very quickly, the idea of adapting classic horror stories was inter- was of interest to the three of us, and we thought that that would be a great way to uh, to springboard into what this Halloween theater festival would be. Now, how do you guys get from Halloween theater festival, which could take any form, you know, imaginable? It's almost like one of those cursed sphere things, right? You know, like it could be this, it could be that, to become something that is site specific that has these these immersive elements to it, where the audience is unmoored from their usual a relationship to uh, a piece and and then there's like now you have the frame and you have the three adaptations and you're pushing people through and I've had people describe previous ones to me and say like and then this happened and that happened and like it like what like freaked us out so like how does it become this kind of thing was it was it like oh well yeah like I don't want to I don't want to give an answer. I have imaginations of like what it could be. but Well, it, it's interesting because it was an evolution, and it continues to be one. Um, initially, when we were talking about what it would be, we were considering it to be a traditional um, uh, theater production, where we would partner with a theater company and produce the work in a traditional theater setting. That was the original idea. Mm. Uh, and what changed was in 2009, we had an opportunity uh, through... Um, uh, a, a partner, if you will, at the time, a theater partner, uh, Theater 40 in Beverly Hills, to get into Greystone Mansion and oh, produce yeah. the first Wicked Lit in Greystone Mansion, which originally wasn't part of the plan, but when that opportunity presented itself, we we jumped at the idea about what a fantastic opportunity this would be. So we switched gears and started to develop the first Wicked Lit with the idea of doing it in that mansion. Uh, and after that, first production, which was re- uh, really wildly successful and, and, and very um, artistically very uh, fulfilling, we realized, oh, this is what Wicked Lit wants to be. It wants to be site-specific. It wants to be in locations like Greystone and, and the like. Now, take us, take us back to that first production and that at Greystone. Was everybody on board right from the start, or was this a thing where it's like, we're doing what, where now? Like, what was the reaction? 
Well, what happened is it actually happened pretty quickly because we, I, I had talked to David Stafford, who's the artistic director over there, and, and uh, I said, you know, is there any chance that we could get into uh, Greystone at some point? And he goes, I'll check. And he came back and he goes, yeah, uh, in fact, you can get in there uh, this October, <laughs> which was like about four months away. So, oh <laughs> so we had to retool everything. We had one story, which was Jonathan's uh, Sleepy Hollow, that we actually did in the gardens out there. But the other two shows uh, didn't really fit, and we wanted it to be you know, site-specific. I mean, really fit the, the pieces. So uh, Paul started working on Fall of the House of Usher, and uh, I started working on uh, uh, Robert E. Howard's Pigeons from Hell, uh, which we thought would both fit in there uh, well. So it, it happened pretty quickly, and, uh, uh, but we pulled it off, and uh, it was very successful. It was only five nights that we mm. had it, and it, it sold out so quickly it made our heads spin. Yeah, you guys, that, that's a pattern with the Wicked Lit. Like, it always goes, and there's, it's interesting to me because there's so much stuff going on what I like to call spooky season, right? Like September, October, into November. Um, and it feels like, from when I've been observing you guys, like the season's getting longer. Like I think it's like farther into November now than you had been previously. Mm-hmm. So like, so it's grown from five nights to like how many nights is it this time? So this year we run seven weeks. It's a total of 29 performances. Um, and considering that the actors actually perform each play three times a night, including our dress rehearsals, they perform these 35 minute plays about a hundred times uh, over the course of the fall. Um, and yeah, the last three years we've sold out every single ticket every single night. So you might want to visit wickedlit.org and choose your night. Um, but it wasn't always that way. Um, the very first year, as Jeff said, we ran one week, five performances. Uh, we sold out the week before we opened. The second year, our very first year at Mountain View, when you know our only audiences had ever seen us in Beverly Hills. This is the complete opposite side of the world um, for you non-Los Angelinos to go from Beverly different Hills. time zone. Yeah, it's exactly. Actually, you got to get a passport stamp when yeah. you cross. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I mean, for for many people, Pasadena is just the other side of the world. Yeah, and this people is don't understand Pasadena. that about LA. Like they, they yeah. make fun of us and say like, oh, I won't go west of the four hundred five. I won't go east of the four hundred five. They don't yeah. realize there are checkpoints. Exactly. And, you, and you've got to have a stamp done. Oh yeah, and after you know the the Brexit sort of situation. It, oh yeah, it's all we all don't talk about. Yeah. I was going to find something for Santa Monica and sex it. Like no, no, that's wrong. That's, that's not. Let's not go there. Um, um, but yeah, that that very first year at Mountain View Mausoleum, as as amazing as the venue was, people didn't know us. You know, we had only had three. 350 people see the show um, so we got to the day before opening and we were like what are we going to do we'd sold some tickets but we still had plenty of availability um, we had a fantastic LA Times article and the next day we sold out yeah. um, and then we said okay now now we have an audience now we can do whatever we want um, 2011 show we went a little nuts and we produced two simultaneous wicked lits three total plays two separate bills um it was utterly insane and uh it did not sell out and it was very very difficult for the three of us for our our creative team we retooled the next year we continued to get more press um and then by 2013 we became this entity that was was a real player during the halloween season and uh um we have amazingly talented artists we get incredible actors and it's allowed us to build something that people look forward to as a halloween theater event and the theater part is incredibly important to us we consider ourselves a theater company we do immersive theater events but we don't do you know we certainly don't do splatter and we certainly don't do um spectacle is part of what we do absolutely but it's about storytelling characters narrative There's because there's a lot in in LA's spooky season. I mean, Los Angeles is known for its extreme haunts in in the 
well, not in the extreme haunts, but in, in sort of like the splatter and the gore and like Universal Horror Nights and Knots, Fright Fest and all that sort of stuff. And this is, this, I imagine this is very much not that tone because like it's not the folks who are the gore hounds who are like coming back from, from you guys who are like, whoa, and then like this guy's head looked like it came off and stuff right. like that. It's, and the, the material you pick, you know, you're, you're looking at, there's often something coming out of Poe or like you get some HP Lovecraft and that stuff's a lot more about tension and what's going on in the, in the mind of the, the characters and the mind of the reader than it is this kind of shock setup. When you, when you're picking material for this, uh, what sort of stories um, attract you guys for Wicked Lit? And then, and then I also want to talk a little bit about history lit and like that side of things. But, but what's the selection process like? Well, it's it's several steps, and um, the three of us ultimately pick the plays that we produce together. Um, and specifically for Wicked Lit, uh, really everything we do, it's about an evening of theatrical diversity. Um, that also illuminates the space and uses the physical location in a really incredible way. So we we haven't and probably won't produce three Edgar Allan Poe plays on the same night. Um, we like having variations of tone, of time period, um, different gender of protagonist, uh, especially in the horror genre. There tends to be a lot of women victims and not a huge number of strong women characters. So when we find those, we're very excited to do that, or we adapt the story so that there are strong women. Um, recently, we've been really making an effort to get more international, so bringing more literature, um, and literature loosely defined, whether it's folk tales or uh, ghost stories or campfire stories, um, so that there's different kinds of storytelling and different kinds of horror. Um, horror to us is the extreme nature of what people do to one another, um, whether it's violence or, or other extreme action. It's not, you know, people getting their heads chopped off with machetes, although we're not above people getting their heads chopped off with machetes, um, or mothers drowning children or cutting people's throats and, um, extreme things happen, but yeah. it's like a Shakespeare play or an ancient Greek play. Like right. these horrible things do happen. Yeah. So just this side of grand Guggenau. Yeah. Yeah. And actually we're one grand of our, Guggenau, one of our great <laughs> friends and, and collaborators, um, is a artistic director of, um, the grand Guggenau company in LA. Um, and she does all kinds of puppets and intense blood work. We do a lot less blood. Yeah. Um, but we also accept, uh, playwright submissions from playwrights who know who we are and what we're about so that it's, uh, at least close in terms of time frame, uh, and like that it runs 35 minutes that it can fit at the mausoleum. And then we select what's the best overall evening. How are we going to get the, um, where are there great roles for actors? Where are there great moments for design and special effects? And it's really all those things coming together that make the process. And one of the things interesting is that you guys have had the mausoleum and the cemetery grounds as your, your headquarters for a while now. And like a lot of the site specific and, and immersive companies here in town, they're they're often itinerant and that they're bouncing from like space to space because it's hard and it's and one of the themes of this year uh on the show and just everyone i've been talking to about this work in general is like it's hard in la to find a location particularly because at any given moment someone can walk along and like if say you're trying to like oh we want to have like a three week you know three month run of something or even just like a two month run and they say that's great but we got a film coming in here and we're going to make more in five days than we can make in five months with you so bye um that's that's something keeps popping up what's it like um the the the, to have a, a headquarters and there's got to be a unique challenge there to doing something that because it's not it's not a, a theater so it's not like the expectation is like oh yeah up here this spot this is you know where the thing happens there's different dynamics so coming back and reimagining it 
Yeah. Well, first of all, you have to have a you know a great relationship with your venue, right? And and we do have that with Mountain View, uh, and and Jay Brown and his family and his and his crew, but they do do a lot of filming there, quite a bit of filming. I mean, it's a great location, and that's why it's great for us, and it's great for uh, other film companies. So you know, part of our our deal with them is that we do the dance, you know, and there's uh, certain days that we aren't doing the show and he uh, tries to get the people to, into those days. But there are times when they have to be in there, uh, uh, you know, in times when we're not in there actually performing, but the show is up. You know, we have the, the equipment up. So we have to do some work to get it to where they can use the space. Uh, and uh, so far it's worked out. I mean, it, it, it does get a little touch and go sometimes, but uh, that's just the nature of, of what we do. So. Yeah. Uh, it's really that relationship and, and people knowing that you're going to do what you say you're going to do and uh, and following through with it. Well, the relationship the relationship is, is, is key. Clearly, I'm kind of curious what part of when it comes to designing, knowing that you're going to have to maybe, oh, we got to pull out of this room for like a day. Like, like this is a fairly like I was mentioning before the show started. This is a fairly nerdy bunch. So, like, are there any any like tips or tricks or like hints to like for folks trying to dealing with that problem? Like. What what your approach is on that, and then that's someone else's phone. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna switch it to silent mode while you answer that question. Sure. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, we we definitely every year we learn more about you know what we should and shouldn't do in terms of uh, of, of production and and uh, setting things up. So I mean, as far as I, I do a lot of the production design, as far as augmenting uh, the space with the look of it. So um, you know, we do a walkthrough first uh, with the uh, with the boss. Uh, and with and with the the crew at uh, Mountain View, and discuss exactly what we have planned and where we're gonna where we're gonna put things, and uh, so they can give us little red flags in terms of where we shouldn't put things and, mm. and that sort of thing. So that's uh, the initial step. Uh, we do work out uh, out in the cemetery. We have a show out in the cemetery, and so uh, that's uh, you know people. It's a working mausoleum, so people are going to visit their loved ones, and uh, and and they're out there in the cemetery. So we have to be, you know, very respectful of that. Uh, when we're rehearsing, if uh, people come, we just step away and and uh, let them, you know, be with their loved ones. Um, at nighttime, they're not there, but we have to be, you know, respectful of the space right. in terms of where the audience is going and, and, and how we use the space. No. But we do, <laughs> yeah. But we do definitely think in terms of, you know, uh, breaks in the uh, in the cable where we have to, you know, at doorways we can break things. Uh, you know, so we can close doors, we can bundle things up if we need to. Um, we keep most of the equipment up, which is amazing. Oh, wow. uh, not, not the cabling, though. The cabling usually stays in place. Uh, but, uh, you know, we bag speakers. We have rolling units for our equipment so we can, you know, roll things out of the way, lock them up. Um, you know, we have a great crew that's uh, striking and setting up every, every, every night. So, um, yeah, we definitely think in terms of what's the best way to do this to where if we need to break it down uh, for a film shoot, we can do it as easy as possible. Uh, but it all depends on every show is different, every year is different. Yeah. I mean, so much of it is about the expectations and managing expectations. Uh, mm. And so we know that this is part of the deal. We're working at Mountain View, whether it's a, a funeral service or a visitation by a family or a film shoot. And so we make it very clear with everyone who works on the show, uh, whether it's a designer, or stage manager, an actor, you know, we, we're very clear, like, this is part of the deal. Working with Mountain View is our partnership involves having to uh, 
move equipment if it need be. And then, and so we, we, we as Jeff said, we try to plan for that, but a lot of it is about expectations. We right. try to mitigate surprises as much as we can. Sometimes they are, but everyone knows going in, this is the reality. Right. And we may have to make an adjustment. And we're, we're fortunate to be at Mountain View. We're very, we, we value that partnership. And, and it, it's about everyone being on the same page. And if I could just add one thing, because you, you had asked about tips. And there's something, a couple things that we've definitely learned after doing this. This is now our eighth year total and seventh year at Mountain View. Um, a big one is just very uh, intense transparency. Be very, very clear about what you want how long it's going to be there, what the potential impact is going to be publicly, privately for visitors to the space. Um, Site-specific work, especially in venues that aren't used to site-specific work, uh, having those representatives have real buy-in because somebody somewhere involved with your venue is not going to understand and not know what you're doing. Oh, yeah. So finding that person who is tied into the venue who gets it, who wants it to be there, who sees the value not only of whatever you're creating for its own creative and artistic merit, but how it benefits the venue, and who can be a champion for you when that naysayer, whoever it is, it could be a board of directors, it could be a staff member, it could be angry neighbors, whatever it is, um, but that there's somebody who knows exactly what's going on and why. And the way to get that buy-in is to be really upfront, really appreciative of their time and of their what they do and what the venue does on days when you're not there. And that doesn't matter if it's a cemetery or a park or whatever it is, um, but that transparency and also um, that, that buy-in with that person, making sure that you have a champion because if you don't, it, everything is an uphill climb. Every bit of, of tech, every bit of, of uh, oh, we need a dressing room. We didn't plan for that. Oh, you know, we want to add an, another night because we can extend or another month. Um, so I would just say when for anybody who wants to enter into this crazy field of immersive site-specific work, um, start there. Don't, don't, you know, surprises are your enemy, even more so than, than low house counts or anything else. Um, try and anticipate as much as you can. Um, and so, yeah, I, I would make sure that people know that. How does, how does working in this, in this form where, you know, you've, you've got... The, the nice thing about some of the logistical challenges that you'll face this way is that it does give you some hard artistic and aesthetic choices to make, and that itself can start to form an aesthetic. So what have you sort of found has developed as, as the feel for, for this kind of work like, um, when it, facing the, those exact kind of logistical challenges? Well, one thing I think is just wonderful is that the three of us, you know, this three-headed monster, we all have very different artistic aesthetic. Um, we come together and we collaborate a lot. We uh, direct each other's plays um, and we work together as, as designer directors and there's all kinds of different things. But we all are, I feel, um, while we're all looking for the best Wicked Lit possible, there's always going to be something that speaks a little bit more to Jeff than it will to me or to me than it will to Paul. Um, we're all looking for strong plays. You know, we want strong characters, strong narrative, whatnot. Um, but I know when I read a play that's submitted to us, I'm like, okay, this is a Jeff play. This mm. has some amazing special effect that I can't imagine happening anywhere in the mausoleum. Um, but Jeff's going to bring it to life in a way that's that's really incredible. I'm drawn more to more international literary tropes and stories that we haven't seen before, um, unearthing kinds of stories and um, narratives and concepts of what horror can be and how horror can be used. So um, either a, an original story that I use as source material to adapt um, that's going to be really exciting to me. You know, um, a demon who does this instead of the typical thing. You know, a not middle-aged white Victorian male looking for something because he's greedy, and then, oh, lo and behold, he gets axed in the face when 
uh, he actually gets caught. Um, different ways that the narratives can entwine. And then absolutely using the space in a different way. Like how can the chapel on the grounds be used in the, you know, whether it's physically used where the audience is in the space or what can it represent something totally different. Um, and I think that's shaped the aesthetic that the that Wicked is very intentionally internally diverse. It's internally has um, different kinds of storytelling, different kinds of humor, and um, but at the end of the day, it's 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 high quality. That I think people who are become fans of ours are like, they don't even, they don't necessarily need to know what the three titles are. That are the three plays. That are the centerpieces. They want to see the new Wicked Lit. They want to see what these crazy guys and the incredible team that they've been able to assemble is going to do this fall. During the course of the year, you guys do you guys do history lit, and sometimes you like break out with a stage reading of some material. So, what's what's the what's the flow of Unbound Productions uh, over the course of the year when it's not gearing up or coming down off of the wicket lit high? Hi. <laughs> <laughs> um, obviously, uh, wicket lit is is the project that Unbound is most known for. Right. Um, but uh, it's it's. It, the, the mission of Unbound is not to produce Wicked Lit, but rather to adapt uh, literature into new, uh, into new plays and create new plays from that. Um, so we're, we are, um, when we're not working on Wicked Lit, uh, the three of us are talking about what other projects uh, interest us and what other projects would serve the mission of the company. Uh, uh, and and um, so, as you mentioned, History Lit uh, is something that we developed in two, 2011 as a reading series, a uh, way of looking at history in creative ways. Uh, and we produced the first History Lit in 2012 uh, with the Pasadena Museum of History on the uh, grounds of the Fenius Mansion, uh, Curtain House, and locations around um, that property. Uh, we then revisited uh, History Lit this past uh, summer, History Lit 2016, where we, re- we re-envisioned two of the plays from 2012 and then uh, introduced a brand new show, uh, a new play that was uh, staged inside the, uh, the gallery space, inside their, ex- their current exhibition. Uh, but again, it was not horror at all, and it was the, the history that was looking at history in creative ways, looking at ways in which uh, a story might illuminate a point of history or a, a shift in point of view or a paradigm shift or whatever that might be. Uh, we're also developing a, a mystery lit banner. Uh, we have a, uh, what, is a, what, will be our, um, what is our first full-length play. Uh, which we're uh, hoping to produce next year, but we're, we're looking, we're searching for the the right partner for that. Uh, and if it you is... might be the right partner, <laughs> email Paul at info at wickedlit.org. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, it it, it uh, this first play is a mashup of three uh, Sherlock Holmes stories that Jonathan adapted and created a full length narrative play uh, that uh, uh, that was a, a that is a common narrative in the play that is drawn from these three stories that are in essence unrelated in the world mm. of Sherlock Holmes. Uh, and so we've done a, a series of stage readings at the Pasadena Central Library, at the Huntington Library over the last couple of years as Jonathan's developed the play, and we've reached out to our unbound audience and patrons. And so people are excited. We're excited about Mystery Lit, and, and we're hoping to debut it next year in 2017. But uh, it's, uh, it's about looking for interesting literary source material uh, that will make uh, very dramatic and interesting and great theater, whether it's Wicked Lit or other titles. Uh, the other thing that uh, that we're doing is uh, pretty diligently, and we need to do it even more diligently, is looking for venues and looking for new partners and, and great spaces to do what we do in them. Because uh, people are attracted to places that are interesting. Yeah. And, and, and uh, what we do uh, has to be done in an interesting place because that's our backdrop. Yeah. You know, and it has to be, especially when we do our full productions, it has to be large enough to be able to do, you know, 
nor on our normal show, three different shows in the same footprint, uh, on the same grounds. Um, so we've been doing a, a lot of talking with people. Won't mention names at this point because we don't have anything locked in. But um, some some pretty cool places and some pretty interesting uh, partners that we're really excited about. Yeah. And so uh, that also helps to drive what we're going to do in those specific places. You know, um, the the actual location kind of helps us determine what's best for this place. Yeah, um, that's th- sort of the fun about site responsive or site specific, right? It's like, and then there's. When, when you start to dig down into it, there's so many kind of ways to go. It's like, you know, I've, I've seen pieces that were written with a specific place in mind and indeed were about the location itself. It's like you can't get more site-specific than like, no, this is a play about this place and you're in the place right. where the play is. Like there's, what, there's, I would love to get my hands on the Los Feliz murder house, right? Because it's like, hi, like there's a great story right there and like you're in the place where it happened. It's mm-hmm. like, it's like the, the quintessential, um, you know, campfire you know, story. It's like right here on this very spot. There's that kind of magic, right. um, and but Just like you, the manor at Greystone Mansion. Yeah, the, you know the Doheny family. Exactly. Like that. That show pops up there, and it's like, it's. I mean, it's, yeah. it's the perfect marriage of form and content uh, in in an architectural and literary sense. Um, but then, and the rest of it, the this, the kind of the key to site specific in my mind from an audience point of view is always go somewhere strange see something unexpected right like that's yeah. that's sort of the formula it's like i'm going where to do what i'm in right and there there is this sort of you know, vanguard of of people who are always looking for that kind of stuff it's like they don't just want to go into a, a black box and watch, uh, you know, uh, an hour long, you know, play that might actually be adaptation of someone's uh, drama pilot uh, that winds up looking like it's staged, like a drama pilot. And you're like, why, why are they taking that table in and out in the course of two scenes? Oh, right. Because someone wrote this as a screenplay. Mm-hmm. Uh, they want to be in the actual space with the people and, Watching watching something where someone takes like a, a piece of like Shepherd and adapts it into something really intimate, and like the Chalk Rep did a couple of years ago, and just how revelatory it can be to be watching actors from five feet away, and suddenly, it's a very different beast from watching a show, even even in a black box, even if you're up at like Ashland or in you're in New York and you're getting really really high quality acting, but it's that that act of like the proscenium being ignored. Is, uh, is is a mighty one. Yeah. Um, what led you guys to work in this fashion? What are what are I mean? One, I'm curious about like inspirations in general, but it is such an odd form. And like on the one hand, yes, there's there's getting the chance to do it at the, at the mansion and then like rolling it off that way. But we're we're playing around the site specific space. Was that something you saw yourself doing? At any point, it's something you experimented with before. Like the, the, nothing ever just happened. This accidents occur, but there's usually some kind of background there. Well, I, I when I lived in Santa Paula, Ventura County, uh, I worked on a project called Ghost the Ghost Walk, mm. and that was in Santa Paula. And uh, so we did. It was, it was different, quite different from what we're doing. But uh, Santa Paula is a small, a small little town, and uh, you know they did a lot of filming there because it has this, you know. Clock Tower, all these old houses, uh, um, Union Oil buildings started there. So there's a lot of history there. Oh, yeah. And so we would have things that were tied into history. We'd have actors portraying characters from history, and the audience would move around, and that would move to a different location every year within the town. So I always loved 
that aspect of, of theater and storytelling. So that was kind of a little bit of my background in site-specific stuff, but, you know, we just, we took it to, you know, you know steroid level with, uh, <laughs> with, with what we're doing, you know, but that's, I've always been interested in it, and I've always been interested in, in uh, horror literature and that type of thing, too, so... Paul contacted me because he he knew that I was interested in those things and he knew about the, my background with uh, the Ghost Walk. And <clears throat> my background is, is really as a playwright. Um, and uh, in college, I produced a new play festival that the very first year there was one act of the festival where there were three site-specific plays and the audience moved around to different locations on the campus. Um, and I had no idea that it was actually a thing. I just thought it would be fun. And I maybe had heard the phrase site-specific and was like, okay, um, and just gave a bunch of actors, uh, a bunch of source material, um, some props. And I said, make a play in here. And over the course of the festival, um, there was this third act uh, that, that was site-specific. And then from there, I had uh, been a literary director for a new play festival at Chance Theater, which is where I met Paul, who directed some of those works. Um, and so the combination of new play development, writing plays, um, I was a literature minor in college and just had always been interested in stories and um, stories from all over the world, uh, from, from Africa, from Scotland. I was just That was just sort of me. So it was really the blending of sort of traditional playwriting with a adventurous spirit um, and the merging of the three of us who all come from just such different, different places um, that I think has really made Wicked as specific as it is. But like in terms of um, how Wicked came to be in terms of our story guides and that there's three plays and there's this frame, um, it really was pretty organic. It, it sort of came together out of a need for something to happen at certain space and time. And just the also, um, there's something about short plays that I think is really um, underrated in the American theater. And mm. it's tough, uh, major theaters, very few major theaters produce short plays, but something about where the three of us could write and direct and be involved and have a 30 to 35 minute piece. And it's not about 90 minutes and no intermission or two hours with an act break. Um, that could allow for different kinds of stories to be adapted, different kinds of of, uh, of points of view to be brought into a single night. Paula, do you played around with the site-specific stuff before this point? Uh, no, actually, I hadn't. Uh, oh, okay. I, my 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 primary background is 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 in directing. Uh, years and years ago, I, I was a stage manager and a number of other jobs in theater, as I know a lot of us have been. But uh, primarily working as a director, uh, and I had not worked in any site-specific uh, uh, situations ever prior to the work that we we we've done together with Unbound and in, in creating Wicked Lit. And the very first Wicked Lit at Greystone was my first foray into directing something in a location that is site-specific and. And uh, I guess because I, I, I am a director first uh, over everything else, um, I would relished that opportunity and that challenge to look at space and use, use space in, 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 in different ways. How did you find your, your, your choices changing with this different plasticity? Like it's, it's almost like a, having a, a, it's still clay, but it's like, oh, it's a different kind of clay. Well, there's, right? it's it's true, and there's there's multiple levels of how you would you 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 stage something in a site specific world, and I can speak specifically about Wicked Lit and, and the work we've done is like under a normal uh, theatrical setting, you know, you have a stage, and uh, as a director, you 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 utilize the space that is the stage, and you stage it uh, in what is an appropriate way to tell the story in the most compelling way, in moving your actors around the space and and helping to shape that. And that's, that's, that's what you do on a traditional theater setting. 
in site specific, there's more to it. There are more dimensions because yes, you are working with your cast and utilizing the space to help illuminate the story and tell the story in a compelling manner. And so there is that correlation between working in a traditional theater setting. However, you're moving an audience too. So you also have to consider, because your audience, they're not sitting in seats like they would in a traditional theater setting. They may be sitting on benches, or they might be standing, or they might be looking up a stairwell. So you're considering those sight lines and how that viewpoint from the audience is affecting how the story is being told, not just from their proximity to the actors, but their proximity, proximity to each other, mm. where the actor, where the audience is with this person compared to this person is in, is 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 experiencing something that's slightly different. So can, keeping all of that in mind is you you're, you're considering the audience's perspective and who is who is experiencing this story based on where they are in relation to the space and the actor in the space. And then you also have because you don't have a traditional situation where you have your stage manager and your crew in a tech booth or backstage, it's constantly fluid and changing. So you have to block your crew and block your stage manager so that your crew can call the show, can operate the show, can support the show, and not break the wall with the audience so that they're you know, hidden like they would be in a normal backstage situation. Because your backstage is changing, your audience is changing, your sight lines are changing, everything is changing, and it's all about how to tell the story in the most dynamic way, utilizing space, utilizing your actors, knowing where your audience is positioning, knowing where you want your audience's focus to be, yeah. knowing how to get your crew from one place to another without being seen. <clears throat> so there's so many more dimensions and layers to using a site-specific venue that for me as a director really excite me and get me really uh, thrilled to do it. And so those are some of the big changes and some of the big big things that I look forward to every time I direct a, a play uh, for Wicked Lit or any of our other projects. One of the things I'm so fascinated with these days is how the audience itself becomes part of the, the framing of, of a piece. And... You know, I know, I know, Jonathan. You you just went to sleep no more for the first time, and I've I've gone twice now. And one of the things that I find fascinating there is that the masks become part of the maison scene. And for me, I get the sense that the audience. The question is: Are the audience the ghosts that are haunting this mench, this hotel, or are the performers the ghosts that are haunting the hotel and somehow we're living people who only appear as ghosts to them and once in a while in that piece they'll play into that that vibe like they'll suddenly be aware of us um but i'll go see pieces sometimes and it's clear that someone hasn't thought about how but the impact of the the audience or you'll get in in a in a very intimate show it's mitigated somewhat because the ratio of performers to audience is, is, you know, tight enough that like it's really easy to ignore everyone else. But there's a kind of a, a threshold around 15 or to 30 audience members in a room at a time when they become a, another creature that's part of it and how they're interacting with the space and with the performers itself starts to become part of the story, whether you want it to be or not. Um, and so it's nice to hear you talk about, you know, that's that's entering into how you're thinking about this stuff because it's a really different, different challenge. I'll tell you, working in depth is so exciting. Yeah, I mean, it's like going to CinemaScope and IMAX. You yeah, know, as a director, you're able to, you know, 
direct and have things coming like in the cemetery. You know, they come in there and have actors coming through the grave, the headstones, Someone with flashlights, me, yeah. and then or or have the audience corralled in a in in a section, and you have speakers and sounds and things going on all around them. Yeah. Or or, or characters appearing, you know, uh, four hundred feet away, and a light comes up on a ghost off in the distance in a in in a cemetery. Yeah. You know? um, I mean, you just that's an experience you don't forget. Yeah. Uh, so like Paul's saying, I mean, it's just, it, it, you know, it, it makes you think uh, multidimensionally and, uh, and then also working the staging of the audience into the whole process where sometimes they do become part of the show. You know, they might be an audience member or they might be, uh, you know, um, uh, out in, the, uh, in a group that somebody's uh, giving a lecture to or, um, you know, and sometimes they, 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 they're not. They're just observing these things. Yeah. And, and maybe we could even take a, a quick step back just because of the, the nature of our show. As I talk to more and more people about site-specific, immersive, moving work, I think ours is a little unique in that it's not like Sleep No More where it's totally flexible and, and you're moving around. And it's not a site-specific play, um, at least like some of, some of what I've seen of, of Chalk Rep or other, other things where it's in a unique location, but you go and you sit in a place and you watch a play that we're really in an in-between place where you are following actors through a very defined path. But you may be in one location, but more likely you'll be in two, three, four, five locations that are very specific, specifically guided, um, and where you stand and where you sit is really um, integral for you to get the full experience yeah. and design. Yeah, the processional itself, like, I mean, I, I always like to say about any kind of play that, like, transitions are really the director's art, right? You know, that's that's why, like, I was talking earlier about, like, uh, seeing someone's play, you know, that really was a screenplay, and, and, and it was... It was. It wasn't the play. It was the staging where there there were no transitions. Like really, it was just like okay, lights down. Now pull this table out. Now lights up. And they got the table for three seconds. Now lights down. I pull the table back out. And it was just I wanted to carve my hand open because it was so frustrating. Because always, always, always the the work that I've loved, um, the, the the way the transition goes, it propels the story. It can be the comment on the story. It can inform the action in a way that like nothing else can. And when you're dealing with a processional type setup and you're, and you're going from set to set or scene to scene. And I, and I do want to, let's drill in there. Like the, the story guide, right? Like that's something you guys have. Um, and, and in the history lit piece I saw, they, I saw them act as pure, just commentary on, on the scene. They weren't really part of it. I've seen them also be like, they're the characters and they're in. And so they're kind of like stepping in and out of the world. Um, that that sort of narrative figure, uh, the the Plato to our our Dante, uh, how how has that kind of come along, and and how how what sort of ways do you view that tool? Because that is a unique tool that you guys use. It's always evolving and it's different every time. Um, the function of the oh, uh, I thought you were going to say period. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, but um, the, the function of the story guide itself is to get the audience from location to location. Right. And, 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 and obviously... Yeah, it has a pure it has a pure There's a, there's a pure logistic, yeah. uh, logistical. And in, yeah. the, in the very first Wicked Lit, that was all it was. Yeah. And it was like this, this actor is, is telling the audience where to go, where to stand, where to sit, and where, what to look at. Um, but as the show has evolved over the years, we've become in ways more sophisticated with the story guides. And we realized there was an opportunity to um, uh, enhance the storytelling 
uh, with the story guide. And so in some cases, the story guide is a character in the play. And so they're a character in the play who's directly breaking the fourth wall, engaging the audience, and the audience has a specific, there's a specific reason for them to be in that world. And the story guide is engaging with them because they are specifically dealing with these people who are in this world for a specific reason. They're not just an audience watching. They're actually there for a reason. They're visitors of this house or whatever. Uh, in other cases, uh, the story guide is me, is bringing the audience to locations, but then they're not engaging with the audience and stepping into the world uh, as a completely different character, or maybe their character has a twist to it. Uh, and then there there's there, there's still there's still uh, instances where the story guide is leading the audience as this character, which is drawn from the wicked lit frame, but not part of the story that they're mm. telling. They're just illuminating or leading the audience to in to engage in the story of this play that they're watching. So it's, it's always evolving, it's always changing, and it, it's basically about what's best going to serve the work, uh, either Wicked Lit as a overall or the individual play or a combination. And so every, every play, every year, it's different, and the directors, a lot of it falls on the director of each individual play and how the story guide is going to be involved in the show. Many of the directors actually script what the story guide is going to say. Uh, in some cases, it falls on the playwright to script that. Um, mm. But it's organic, and every year and every play is unique. And how the story guide is, is incorporated into uh, each uh, individual narrative is unique. And one little example that I like to give is we've done uh, Legend of Sleepy Hollow twice. Um, the first time was with a, uh, our very first year, and the story guide was, was very traditional, just sort of moved to this place. Um, and that worked out great because then the, the ensemble who doubled as storytellers who spoke directly to the audience in Washington Irving's words would also double the characters in the story. So it was very clear where where the character lines were drawn. The second time that um, it was produced, first time Paul directed it fantastically. Second time Jeff directed it fantastically. What a love fest. Um, but the, the second time there was no story guide and almost every character at one point spoke to the audience and said, come here, move this way, stand here, go on this bench. Um, and then would step into the storyteller role, um, in a sense, narrating the story, and then step into a third role as Brom Bones or Katrina or what have you. Um, and that worked fantastically well. And as long as it's clear that the audience knows what they're supposed to do, um, because for us it's really, you have to be in a certain space to see the scene and hear the words. Um, so it's not flexible like a sleep no more or something like that. We're like, oh, if you miss it, it's okay, because it doesn't really matter. It's like, no, you need to kind of hear the words of the play. Yeah. Um, so it was just very funny and, and wonderful um, for me, especially as, as the player to that piece but also just as a fan of Wicked Lit and what these guys do um, to watch the story guide become what it needed to be for the staging for the setting that second production of Sleepy Hollow also had like 13 audience moves or something like that it was by far the most we've moved an audience um, and having like another person in there probably just would have been really cumbersome but it's also part of the theatrical magic of that person was telling me where to sit and then they were yelling at me and then they were yelling at her and then they died and then... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, and, and there's and there's something to that. Like uh, recently, the Speakeasy Society uh, they did they did uh, they've been working on a series of uh, adaptations off of uh, Dalton Trumbo's uh, Johnny Get Your Gun, and uh, this time there's some of the tracks involved, the characters sort of breaking from the moment they were in to address the audience member who was always in sort of cast in the role of Johnny. The idea being its first person perspective. And then kind of jumping back up into the character, and there's a it's a it's a Brechtian move on one level, but there's something about that construction of of there being multiple levels that somehow let me at least, and it's worked 
for a few other people I know at least let you kind of get into that mode where you realize oh there's more than one layer going on and you, instead of taking you further away it actually brought us more in because suddenly we're getting we're understanding the subconscious track of the character who were whose eyes are inhabiting and this idea of oh somehow by making the, the that there's a play space being delineated more obvious it becomes a relaxation like okay i don't have to worry about like you know where the line's drawn they're they're doing that for me they're yeah. making the transition and like you get pulled in it's kind of like at disneyland where yeah. you get in a, a car and it it shows you what it wants you to see right yeah it turns and pivots and it's, it's it's showing if you look behind it you'll see the lights and you'll see the stuff exactly we're doing the same thing but you know on foot yeah moving people placing them where we want to put them and and putting a lot of thought into where they where they go and that's why we keep the groups down to yeah. a, you know a small group so that uh, everybody can see everybody can hear uh, but yeah, that's basically the same same and thing. The and dark ride is one of the core metaphors I use for yeah. like yeah. talking about this sort of stuff. Well, and and outside of the the logistics, which are critical, it definitely informs the different kinds of narrative. Like for example, a couple of years ago, I, I did a, a, a adaptation of uh, the La Llorona myth called Las Lloronas, which retold the story five different ways. Um, and El Diablo is our guide, and he speaks directly to the audience before each of the five retellings. And he, you know, he, there is a sense of he is talking to you, the audience, and these stories are being retold for your benefit or, mm. or not, depending on how <laughs> reliable you think El Diablo may be. Yeah. Um, I guess that depends on certain uh, affiliations you may have. Yeah. Um, but it's, and, and so then there was definitely a sense of you are here, we have gathered you, we are performing this, you are hearing these stories for this reason. And then the way that, that those stories were unfold, directing, uh, directing the audience's perception, as opposed to watching a play and just being a, an anonymous fly on the wall yeah. where you're not really there. There's something about like engaging the active suspension of disbelief, mm-hmm. engaging the magical act of asking the audience to become part of the ritual that creates the irreality, uh, that kind of address. And that, and, and maybe that's part of what's, what makes all this so, so special and so magical. Uh, I know we've got to get, uh, we got to get Paul out of here in, in a second. Um, so let's, let's take a brief pause and then maybe we'll, we'll carry on for a couple minutes and, and, uh, cause I want to, want to quiz Jonathan about his sleep no more experience. Yeah. So we'll be, we'll be right back after what to you is a non-existent break. Hey, we're back. Uh, <laughs> you didn't notice, but I did. Or maybe you did notice. Maybe I finally got some music for this thing. Because during the break, I came up with who I'm going to ask uh, next to do music for the show. Um, Jonathan, um, before I ask you about your, your trip to New York to see Sleep No More, uh, maybe we should talk, uh, as you suggested during the break, about this year's Wicked Lit. So uh, give, us, give us the pitch, because I know you've got at least one of my favorite authors, and uh, you, you're also getting to indulge your international side. Yes, and what a great idea for asking. Thank you. Um, <laughs> we know it's your idea for asking. <laughs> um, you just thanked yourself on my show. That's a punishable fit. No, that happens. <laughs> um, so as Paul said earlier, um, Wicked Lit is made up of three plays and a frame. Uh, the frame this year is actually very exciting. We like the frame to do a couple of things. One, it, it uh, brings some entertainment to the pre-show and the intervals, um, something you didn't experience at History Lit, just so that uh, while the show's reset, uh, while, the, while the play's reset, there's some entertainment going on. Um, so this year, uh, in, in, pa- in past years, you've um, been welcomed to Mountain View Asylum, where you're witnessing plays mm-hmm. performed by the inmates. Um, you've been welcomed- thought action goes a long way. Yes. Yeah. Um, you've been welcomed to a Walpurgis Noct festival where we are appeasing the demons with uh, entertainments and magic. And this year, you're actually being welcomed to Camp Mountain View, um, a camp run 
possibly by the dead or undead. Oh, uh, for you are the friends and family of the campers of Camp Mountain View, and you will see you're here for Talent Night as they perform their Wicked Lit plays. Oh, that's fun. And there's all kinds of ghostly arts and crafts and archery and whatnot that you'll get to look forward to. So that's all we'll say about that. Um, once oh, you God. make it through Archery the- plus immersive theater sounds like a really bad Oh, idea. it's going to be awesome. It's going to be awesome. We've got a great insurance policy. We're <laughs> set. Um, so, I love good, bad ideas. You're right. So, yeah. uh, so one of the plays we're going to do uh, is called The Shadowy Third. It's adapted by an, uh, from an Ellen Glasgow story uh, by Paul, actually. Um, and that's going to be staged inside the mausoleum. It's a, it's a really awesome, creepy uh, melodrama that unfolds um, into an ending that I don't want to say too much about. But um, it utilizes the mausoleum as this great ancient uh, mansion in uh, rural New Jersey that uh, has a whole bunch of secrets and lies that we learn about throughout the course of the play. Um, lots of returning Wicked actors in that one. Actually, lots of returning Wicked actors everywhere. Um, about half the cast have done shows with us before and oh, half cool. newbies, so fans of ours will see a lot of familiar faces. Um, another play that we're doing is a brand new play called Anansi and the Demons um, that I adapted. That will be out in the cemetery, and it's drawn from children's Anansi stories, folk tales about the Trixie spider and how he uh, goes about his day, and, and, and ultimately we learn morals and, and, and from fable-like stories. And I've combined that with um, Ashanti ghost story and vampire traditions that I've read about um, through Proverbs and other different stories um, to make a very adult um, demon-infested story out in the cemetery. But we follow Anansi and his, uh, or her, I should say, in this particular adaptation, her trickster ways um, as the ambassador from the uh, British um, that has sort of settled on land and made things very difficult for the Ashanti um, as the ambassador and, and Anansi traverse the, the burial garden to, uh, to try and appease these demons who are causing havoc. Um, and then the final play, why don't I, Jeff, you want to talk about the last one? Yeah, the final play is H.P. Uh, Lovecraft's From Beyond. So, uh, um, you know, we know we have a lot of H.P. Lovecraft fans out there. And uh, um, Trey Nichols uh, adapted the piece, and, and I will be directing it. I'm very excited about that. And uh, uh, most uh, fans of horror literature know that story. It's been made into a film. And uh, um, so um, we've got quite a few interesting surprises with that. But, uh, you know, opening up uh, the vistas uh, into another world that surrounds us all the time, but we don't know about it, and creatures that are circling us and... Uh, this uh, this contraption, this machine uh, that Tilling has to, uh, creates, uh, opens us up this portal up into this other world. So uh, uh, expect some uh, interesting uh, chills and effects, and uh, it's going to be fun. It's, it's going to be a fun evening. Nice. How? I mean, I'll ask this one. How, how the the frame the frame offers so many possibilities. Like, how, how is there some plasticity between the frame and the pieces themselves? Like. How it goes from one point to the other? Yes, and it's actually been very interesting. We didn't have a frame for the first several Wicked Lits. Uh, And the first time we attempted something like a frame, it was really just uh, performances during the intermissions to try and keep things exciting and, and interesting. And then from there, it's grown into pieces that have been more cohesive within themselves. Um, and they give some sort of context for why you're here uh, seeing Wicked Lit. Why are you here at the Mausoleum and Cemetery? Um, but it's not necessarily a, a narrative unto itself. But because it lends some context, um, there does grow a little bit of continuity that we didn't have um, ordinarily. You, now, we've always celebrated Wicked Lit as the event, and then yeah. it is made up of these three plays. 
Um, but yeah, especially because um, I'm writing the frame this year and I'm, I'm very intentionally incorporating the plays into the frame. So uh, it's Camp Mountain View. So what would camp be without uh, campfire ghost stories? So the ghost stories that are told around this uh, incredible campfire that we've built, um, one of them is drawn from Ashanti Folktales. One of them is an H.P. Lovecraft story. Um, and then we're going to work in a, an Ellen Glasgow piece as well so that these other characters who aren't parts of those plays are bringing in flavor that actually are informing the plays that um, you're seeing or just saw, um, which you won't necessarily know until something reveals itself in the play. Like um, at the very end of, a, of a, a non seeing the Demons, there's something that if you're paying attention um, is a little bit of payoff from something that you've learned from the frame. Um, cool. So that's that, that we're really excited about. Um, and... We've, we've said from the beginning that we don't want the frame and these extra additional experiences to make the night longer. Right. Uh, Wicked Lit runs about three hours. Um, but we do want it to make it more uh, comprehensive and fun and entertaining. Um, but, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely the, the – it's, it's a show unto itself. Um, but it really is sort of the, the umbrella that the entire show that is Wicked Lit sits under. Yeah, and there's – can even sort of get that feeling of getting back to that sort of Brechtian sense of like you're being sandwiched between a couple of different worlds and that sort of trick of interpolating things like can reinforce that suspension of disbelief, right? Like, I mean, there's there's something magical to, you know, Murat Saad, right? Like, you know, like, oh, we're watching this, but it's happening here, and it's and the, the, the be-all and end-all. Like, I one day want to see someone do, like, a, a site-specific you know, or kind of or site responsive, technically speaking, adaptation of Murat Zad and like, well, you're going to be the French aristocracy. Yeah, like, mm-hmm. it's like, yeah. wah, you know, and just put a couple of shills in the audience and just let's get freaky, you know. Um, and I'm sure it's already happened. So uh, it's just, you know, probably probably some 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 theater uh, university campus somewhere that has since been like shut down for <laughs> ethics violations. Yeah. Like, everyone got fired that year. We never speak of it ever again. Yeah. Um, uh, you you recently went and saw Sleep No More. So uh, and it was your, your first time. So yeah. you've been you've been playing in, in in the in the site specific and the processional space for a while and, and it that's it's such a different beast from what you do. So uh, what was what was your what was your reaction? Well, I mean, it, it's just an incredible production design marvel. Um, I actually, and as much as I love just being able to step off at every floor and have different experiences, different textures under your feet, yeah. different you know, different the you're you're inside this hotel, but you enter an exterior. You know that there's. Uh, I've been trying not to tell Jeff too much about it because I desperately <laughs> want him to see it. But, you know, you go into a room and there's just and there's presents wrapped with music paper and there's 50 beautiful classic antique desks stacked, stacked upon one another. And um, I uh, it, it was a long day for me that day. I actually started that day at the Met. Then I saw a Fun Home um, at 2 o'clock. So oh, wow. a nice musical, Tony Ward winning musical in the round. Then I saw Small Mouth Sounds at Signature at 5 and then ended the day of sleep no more. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I had quite the theater day. That's 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 a, that's a sensory. I mean, <laughs> S&M by itself is a, is a total <laughs> sensory overload. So the, And I've had the weird experience of, of both times I've seen it, I've decided to take a giant walk that day, which mm. is a huge mistake. So mm. the first time it was like, oh, I'll just walk all around Chelsea and like I'll do the High Line and I'll go, I'll go all the way up the High Line, then all the way back down the High Line, and then all the way back up the High Line, and then uh, now I'm going to walk around this uh, warehouse for you know almost three hours. Right. And then the second time I was like hanging out with someone in the East Village, and then like walk them up 
uh, to where they lived and then just decided since I wasn't on a subway line, you know, I'll just walk west to Chelsea. So I walked the the, the width of Manhattan uh, and, and, it was, and by the time I got to the, to the McKittrick, I was like, why did I do that? My feet hurt so bad and I know what I'm in for. Yeah. Uh, so and it's, it's a three hour show, huh? It's, yeah. Uh, yeah. it's like two, two and a half. Yeah, I right. mean, you can always... You can always head down to the bar and and relax, but if you're not in the space, you're inevitably missing things. And there's right. there they say it takes eight times to see everything. Mm. Like it's it's it is it is uh, dense in terms it's of layered things. and it's, dense. It's, yeah. yes. but like any any given scene might just be like one actor. Like everyone's on track, so you can kind of right. chase the actors around. So. But yeah, I mean, I, I thought it was I thought it was just incredible. In addition to the production design, actually, I mean, the performers were incredible just the athleticism the storytelling the concentration you know all, all those things were, were just wonderful the the conceit of the audience wearing masks um was just tremendous um and the sound design i thought was incredible yeah. just moving from space to space and how music or ambient sound or um fractured old-timey radio um was, was just really incredible that um, was that was a big guide for when they developed it mm. like they almost like started with the sound and yeah. went from there and like the first time I was there, the thing that got to me was realizing that if you walked into a room and it was dead, uh, because rooms could be dead for like 20, 30 minutes mm-hmm. at a time, if not longer, because there's so much space and there's there's way, way more spaces than there are actors, was that you'd hear the sound of a record player just at, you know, at the end of a record, mm-hmm. it's like, because mm-hmm. right. it's going around and around and around. That sound would be playing in a room. And after about 45 minutes to an hour in the space, I walked into a room like that. I was like, this room is dead. I don't have to be in this room. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't a, a clue because right. I like zeroed in on that level. And so you can lose yourself just in the audio alone and mm-hmm. use that as a guide. Yeah. Well, I mean, and I, I was just taken with the whole, uh, the whole experience. And, and that's, that's the kind of immersiveness that, wow, we, we aspire to. We have a, a functioning mausoleum and cemetery. So a lot of the, the um, production design is done for us. Although Jeff and, um, Curtis Bedford, our production builder, they do amazing things to highlight uh, spaces and rooms and whatnot. So I just thought that was tremendous. I, I was one of those guys going through the drawers and looking at all the <laughs> things. And there were, there were people doing it even more than Did me. Did you find the candy room? Reading every letter. I mean, I, I saw there was like, like the candy shop. Yeah. Thing. Yeah. 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 You, know, you could take the candy, right? I saw other people taking the candy, and I'm like, I don't know. Yeah, you, so, yeah you're allowed to take the candy. <laughs> I didn't know that the first time. The first time I was like, afterwards, like, you went to the candy shop, right? right. I was like, no. I was like, yeah, there's, there's free candy. I was like, oh, there's I, free candy. I, yeah, I saw the whole thing, and I just... I just <laughs> you well, thought they were being wrong. You know, They're being bad. They're stealing candy. <laughs> don't steal candy, children. You know? Well, like, Wicked Lit, um, every year, uh, the... And part another reason why we have the frame is it starts with the curtain speech. That's like this is how this is going to work because we don't really tell anybody how it works before we get there because it's too complicated and it doesn't really matter. Just come and we'll tell you how it is. You have to be able to walk, but other than that, we're not going to tell you. But then we tell you that you're going to follow actors. You're going to go into these places, and then we're in the mausoleum, so you can't touch the walls. If there's an earthquake, this is what you do. Like there's a lot of stuff we have to relay, right. and and there's some information. So we try and make that in of itself kind of fun and interesting. Um, I was kind of taken with Sleep No More. That's like, you're in an elevator, and it's like, don't talk, wear your mask, push you out the elevator. And it's like, oh. Oh. Oh, okay. I guess I will wear my mask and not talk, and I'll figure out the rest. Um, I feel like I didn't figure out the rest. Honestly, I do feel like I want to go again and see it, but... Um, that's how they get you. You know? <laughs> that, that, is, that, is, that, is the, that is almost the entire marketing plan, Oh, sure. Right? Oh, sure. 
Yeah. But I mean, but just just incredible in terms of like you can walk into a ballroom and then, you know, when Burnham Wood comes out, it's just fantastic. And yeah. I'm familiar with the Scottish place. So that helped a lot. So when I saw the sporadic You're like scene me. You here and there. You say it anywhere. Oh, good oh man. no. Good man. Good Everywhere man. I go. And we have a story. Oh. But, oh. Well, my personal story is I said it in college when I was in a stage management booth on the opening night oh of that show. God. So ever since then, oh, I just don't even go there. Um, How are you even alive? Uh, and then another quick aside, I was at UCSD and La Jolla Playhouse was opening a brand new theater that was called, it was Lee Blessing, the Scottish play. It was supposed to be the first play in the new theater. Mm-hmm. I was like, that doesn't seem like a good idea. <laughs> and then interestingly, the sound, the uh, water that was supposed to fuel the fire extinguisher, like emergency system if there's a fire, never worked quite correctly. And then the theater didn't open in time. And then that play was never produced um, huh. at La Jolla Playhouse. So it was produced somewhere else. Funny how that happens. Funny how that happens. Hmm. Tempting yeah. fate. Um, yeah. I have, I, have, I have a superstition. I've held this long before I did no pro. Like, I, I've always treated like, I always live by the old, you know, all the world's a stage mm-hmm. adage. So I'm like, I ain't saying that word. Wherever anywhere. I am is yeah. the theater. That's yeah, where, wherever <laughs> I am. And, and in a site-specific world, anywhere you might exactly. be could could theoretically right. be. Uh, like, we could... We could. You might be doing it here next if, year. If I, and if I say the word in here, I can't use this space. Right. So, like, no, no good. Well, the most infamous one with, with Wicked Lit is we had... Uh, uh, I didn't know this until afterwards, but we had a dress rehearsal a couple, year, couple years ago that was canceled due to lightning in that the lightning hit the power pole on the property and killed power for blocks around oh, killed power who I heard killed <laughs> with no person ready. okay good so we had to cancel um an invited dress rehearsal and we opened the next day we had to rerun the power for the entire building off of a generator it was an intense 14 hour day for our electricians it was awful and i later learned that one of our crew had said the offending words earlier that day yeah. uh, and uh and no. you know so but for me, it's been since college. Um, but um, but yeah, I mean, it's uh, I mean, sleep no more is a juggernaut. It's uh, it's it's somewhere between a dance piece, a theater piece, a museum experience. It's it's so many things. You could just go and, and look for forty five minutes without seeing a single actor. You could just watch the actor for hours. It's, it's yeah. pretty incredible. I mean, it's like a, a performance art piece. It sounds like yeah. I wouldn't call it's, it a play. I, I don't know what I. I mean, it's yeah. it's definitely immersive well, theater though. I, I mean, that's that's sort of the thing. That's sort of why it's like the the you know the gold standard like right now and and there's so many like we always come back to this in the show there's like there's snm and there's then she fell in new york which is structured entirely differently but still has that same level of attention to detail and indeed some the the shows have often like shared at performers and so there's a there's a high level of physical theater and dance going on i mean these are dancers who are performing these pieces right and so right. You'll, you'll sometimes you'll see people doing physical theater stuff and they're not dancers and it's like meh, okay uh and sometimes it's like oh they're doing pretty good um but it just takes it that whole other level and the funny thing for me is there were the first time i saw it there were pieces in it where i was like you know if i saw that on a stage mm-hmm being danced I'd be bored by mm. it because it was like okay some modern dance I mean I've been seeing dance shows since I was like five right like that's that's what the family was and and I've seen absolutely brilliant recreations of like Nijinsky's Bolero done by like Oakland Ballet because they found the notes for the Ballet Russe and they're like we're doing it and they did it and it blows the mind and instantly they turn around and they do some like three piece modern abstract thing that's just like oh that's garbage you know like it is not Ugh, I'm hitting the microphone. I'm a horrible person. Um, it does not live up to the standard. And so there, there were things that were going on in that piece in Sleep No More where I was like, I'll 
you know, if this was on a Presidium stage, I'd be bored out of my mind. But I'm two feet away from mm. them. I can see their muscles straining mm. on the weight of this thing. Like, they're making it look effortless. But, like, when you're up close, you see, oh, no, there's a lot of effort going yeah. on. And the same is true for, like, a, a great just drama piece that's acted up close, right? That this... this Yeah, definitely. This more than cinematic experience because you're 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 not seeing what the camera is telling you to see you're seeing the actual effort there's no breaking away there's no edit the well, you were talking earlier jeff about depth and having that dimension to play with and i keep thinking about the way most 3d films are trash uh because a lot of directors like they, they film directors they're thinking about the z-axis to some degree but it's a totally different relationship uh in 3d than it is on the stage um than it is to like a 2d film and like not out of a looking scope not out you know the citizen kane still takes your breath away because orson welles was a stage director first and he understood the power of setting something you know up and to the left and it dominates the entire screen even though it's tiny in the back because that's where all the motion is yeah. like tricks like that that is still picture eye and all that kind of stuff absolutely yeah. and and in 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 this space in in site specific and immersive like for me the the key moment i do want don't spoil there's there's i'll, I'll be very generic for, for your sake on this one because you should go see sleep noir but there there was a moment in the ballroom one of the entrances and i was just like i was so blown away by the way they managed the entire cast and at this point you had you'd been with different people and it was the first time the whole cast was together and the way they managed the attention flow of the cast to one person and then that person's attention flowed to another and it mm. made it made an entrance possible because of just simple social engineering. Right. It's like you the audience have been following this one person. Now this one person is going to pay attention to this other person. This other person is going to look somewhere everybody looks. It's sleight of mind, it's social engineering, it's it's this brilliant directorial yeah, well, cinematically, trick. you know, you go to a close up, right? Or a medium shot. Yeah. In theater, you yeah. have to find other ways to direct the attention to what you want it directed to. And, yeah. and also in the site specific thing, um, you know, it's all perception. You exactly. Know? And so everybody's even seated in a different place. So yeah. everybody's seeing a little bit different show, a yeah. little bit different angle, and you're trying to as a as a director, trying to make it interesting from all those different angles yeah. uh, and also and also make sure that everybody's is going to uh, the point of interest that you want them to go to yeah. at, at the time you want them to yeah and what's what's funny is that that sort of point of interest managing you know that's that's coming up now in when people are doing VR cinema in terms of like how they're how they're managing editing in VR cinema is con, you know directing the attention of the audience you've got a 360 surround so how do you how do you direct their attention because you need their attention somewhere to make an edit work without it being nauseating so this whole idea I mean almost our entire media landscape is based on the idea of how do I get someone's attention how do I direct their attention Mm -hmm. and what, what what can I then do once I have that power and all of you guys are playing with that. The VR people are playing with that, and everyone's making a website is playing with that. So we find ourselves in a really interesting time. I mean, it's so great when it works, and, 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 yeah. and we're getting better at it. But even like last year when we did Usher, there was a moment that almost nobody saw, and it was Madeline 
uh, was leaving and going up the stairs, and she's off in the distance. Mm. And uh, 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 Roderick Usher is looking at her, and I kept trying to get him to focus more, you know, but he focused too much on her, you know, beforehand. So then nobody was looking because they're pointing the other direction, oh, and, wow. and I couldn't get him to turn the other way. And it was the creepiest, spookiest moment. And about, you know, maybe three people saw it yeah you know so it's like you're always thinking okay so how can i make that work uh next time and sound is something we use quite a bit too to direct people's attention you know there's a lot of different yeah. ways to do it so it's 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 really fun to try and, and craft it it really is a crafting uh of, of of that of those elements to make that all work well and then there's like you know can you use the audience to help direct the audience's attention right because like if if part of the audience is seated in such a way that they can see it right you know and like if if we are kind of herd animals so it's like these three audience members are looking at some point and an actor's looking at some point like you're gonna oh and then you're looking at it and then someone over there like somewhere north or south of you who wasn't that all sounds like everyone's looking in a direction you Mm -hmm. know like that 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 it's there's magic in that there's magic in that we've we've done a couple things where we've divided audiences um in in different ways you know sometimes people are up on a second level looking down on a scene and there's audience um on the same level with the actors um one that was was kind of was pretty palpable was we did a uh, i wrote an adaptation of the new catacomb that Mm. um the conceit is that that's it they've there's been a great archaeological discovery you can't have any light on or it will damage it so the one character set up a string so that he can walk along the dark corridors of the, of the catacomb to find where his discovery is, and he doesn't have to have any light. Um, and as he's explaining this to his frenemy, um, he's also explaining it to the audience, as they have to hold on to a string and enter into the darkness. And the director of that piece, Doug Clayton, um, actually divided the audience into two different groups. Mm-hmm. So they're both holding a string, but they're separating each other, and you think they're, they're you're walking along the same corridor until all of a sudden you separate. Oh, um, and it just added this sense of like, did we pick the right string? Like, yeah. this doesn't seem like it's going well. And then they ultimately met up and um, got the same horrible conclusion to that play. Uh, oh, horrible the, for the characters. When yeah. the string goes loose. Oh, yeah. And then yeah, when, the, goes, <laughs> when the string go, yeah, goes slack and slack. then gets pulled out of your hand. Um, yeah. So yeah. that was fun. Yeah. Um, but there was definitely just, just that sense of like, wait, why? Did, you know, did, did I make the right choice? Yeah. Is this going to be okay? Am I still going to be able to see the play? Yeah. You know, am I going to see what happens to the characters? It was, it was very interesting interesting how that sort of evolved we're also actors you know uh, dividing up and you see the actors going down a corridor and turning a corner and the audience goes a different direction yeah, yeah. that's you a know, big that part type of what thing is, yeah. is, is fun also there's there's a lot there's a lot in the the old FOMO the old fear of missing out like playing with that mm-hmm. and then uh, dividing people on different tracks you know and that's that's built into sleep no more just because like you cannot right. and then other shows where it's controlled but there's still multiple tracks going on you know, then then everyone gets together afterwards and says, "Well, what did you see? Well, oh, this was this. Oh, I got this part." And so it it, it it's a built-in, you know, forcing the conversation out or inviting the conversation afterwards. But you have to like collect it all. And then there are people who'll just go back. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, oh, I went back four times. There are, there are fans of Sleep No More. Like there are fans of any Broadway show. Like we're there like every weekend. <laughs> right. But to like add in these other layers. I mean, it sounds kind of like um, a, a springboard off of Tamara, which was out years and years ago yeah you know where they you would follow different people um uh, different cast members which is a little different where you think you can just go anywhere and sleep no more but i mean that idea of of oh i went with the butler yeah and i saw this and i went with the you know the, the lover you know and uh, and saying well i want to go back and see it with the butler now you know so a lot of people did it multiple times which yeah, is no. a great no it's marketing it's, tool it's a great marketing tool it's a smart it's a smart way to go and 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 there's there's sort of an uh, there's an underlying truth to that uh, that you know, stories, 
think our reality is definitely built up of lots of different perceptions on a, on a single thing. Exactly. Well, gentlemen, uh, I want to thank you for sticking around for uh, our, our little second act here. Um, sure. And tell people when they want to go. They want to they want to get their tickets to Wicked Lit while they still can. How yeah. do they do that? Wickedlit.org That's is easy definitely enough. the best way. Um, and actually, we're also always looking for partners if people want to bring Wicked Lit to their hometown. They can start that by going to stagerights.com. Um, we're working with a very excellent publisher to uh, help get the word out. Um, there have been some other productions of Wicked Lit plays in theaters uh, all over the world, actually. But um, if uh, there's producers out there who like the sound of all this stuff, talk to Stage Rights. Um, they're, they're, we're looking for the right partners to, to bring this to other cities. Well, that's a, that's a whole other layer I didn't know you guys what? were doing. So yeah, we, we, uh, we should talk about that. We'll talk about that next time. We'll talk about that next time. We'll yeah. talk about that. Yeah, but wickedlit.org. Because we're a nonprofit, unboundproductions.org will get you to the same place. Fantastic. Well, guys. And look at being a member as well. <laughs> yeah. We have a membership. We see everything we do uh, all year. So it's a, it's a great, uh, great deal and a great way to support us. Fantastic. Gentlemen. I'm sure we'll be talking again soon. All righty. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. All right. Once again, just want to thank Jonathan, Jeff, and Paul for being our guests on the show today. You can check out Wicked Lit at wickedlit.org. You can also find the other stuff that Unbound Production does by going to unboundproductions.org. They resolve to the same site, so you'll be fine. Um, <laughs> how you can find us online is you can go to nopersinium.com. You can find us on Twitter at nopersinium. Facebook is facebook.com slash nopersinium. The Medium Collection, where we put all of our essays and reviews, reviews coming up for Bardo and for Devoted. That's at medium.com slash no dash proscenium. The Patreon, which I spent nine years talking about earlier, is at patreon.com slash no proscenium. Remember, we're just looking for a buck a month. A buck a month from everyone who listens to the podcast on the regular. And we'll be, be able to do the newsletter till probably the end of time, meaning when I die, whenever that is, hopefully long from now. But it's spooky season. You never know what's going to happen. We've got more coming. We've got some more episodes in the can. We've got uh, some more episodes scheduled to be recorded. I'm going to be up in the Bay Area checking out We Players, Romeo and Juliet next weekend. So if you're up in Petaluma on the 17th, uh, come say hi. And um, there's so many shows going on right now that I'm sure you're going to run into me somewhere out there. Um, brand new episode next week. Not going to tell you what it is yet because we should be recording on Monday. And uh, we'll, we'll get into it all then. And yeah, um, I hope you have a lovely weekend. I hope you've been enjoying the show. Uh, reach out to us via email, no underscore proscenium at outlook.com. Tell us about shows that are happening. Tell us what you think of the show, your tips, your hints. Oh, um, you know, something I never do. If you listen to this on iTunes, uh, feel free to drop a review. So many podcasters always go, like, oh, we use a review on iTunes. It does actually matter. Uh, and people, people will be able to find it faster so i never do that i should do that so please drop a review on itunes um you know how many stars you get and help us get discovered by uh more people because this is how this community grows is by everyone telling a friend so what i'm saying is tell a friend and then you write, write the silly reviews and then drop a dollar in a bucket and then uh turn around uh three times wittershins and if you don't know what wittershins is you better educate yourself because it's spooky season and you need to know what wittershins is, and you're going to be in big 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 trouble Okay, that's enough anxiety about spooky stuff. Until, until the dark time comes. Um, 
I'll see you at the show.